Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here. And it's my honor and privilege to read the passage to you this morning from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, Let's pray together as we look to God's word. Father, give us a longing and passion this morning to worship your Son. Give us a sense of what it means, even, that he is truly king of all people, and that his Father, you, long for all of us to worship him together. Use this passage, this story, uh, to to get our eyes on him and the important power and implications of all that these things mean. We trust, Lord, uh, that you are with us as we look to your word, and we pray that your word would do the work this morning of changing our hearts and, and shaping them more into the image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're gearing up soon here for the Iowa caucuses coming in January and a year devoted to this presidential election. Some of you are in the process of sort of recoiling just because I said that. It's, it's, it's okay, and it's going to be okay this morning. Uh, but in, this, in these election years, especially during the primaries, right, there are all kinds of candidates, and it's fairly common for them all to be very publicly making their case as to why they would be the greatest candidate. And And it's also common for everyday people like us, right, to discuss which candidates we think are best. And as tense as these conversations can be these days, this is all very normal and expected. But I want you to imagine that you meet a new friend, maybe at work, who has immigrated to America. They just arrived, not even a citizen yet. 
Uh, but as you speak with them about this next year's election, you learn it is the entire reason they moved here from across the world. They have come from a faraway land because they just love one of these candidates in particular. And as they describe the candidate they love, uh, you get the sense that their love for this candidate goes far beyond simply appreciating or respecting him. For them, this is a, this is a religious thing. It's really even sort of a, a spiritual thing. It's about worship. Uh, they're not even citizens. He's not even going to be their president. They're outsiders, but they have come from this far-off land to worship their presidential candidate. And here they are telling you about their deep desire to worship him. When I think of that scenario, I don't know about you, but the only thing that comes to mind is that, is that Homer Simpson meme where he just kind of backs up into the bush, right? It's like, all right, man, uh, I got to go. But that, that scenario is kind of how a first century Jew might feel after reading our passage today. Uh, what we see in this story are two very different responses to the news of King Jesus' birth, but both come from members of the same general group of people that we'll run into throughout the book, namely, as we've called them, the irreligious outsiders, people who, at least you would presume, have no context for the Old Testament system of religion and worship. And as we've already seen and discussed, Matthew's gospel was typically not written for them, really. It, it, his primary audience is Jewish readers, which is why these past two weeks we have seen, it's almost as if this book starts with loud royal trumpet blasts, that the long-anticipated king of God's covenant people has finally come. The Old Testament is fulfilled here in the person of Jesus. In week one, Matthew traced the royal line of David all the way from Abraham to Jesus. Then last week, uh, he told us the story of how Jesus was included in that royal line when God sent an angel to Mary's husband, Joseph, to help him see this was not just a personal life crisis for him, but the birth of Jesus. This is all part of his plan to redeem creation, even from the problem of sin, which has plagued creation since the very beginning. Notice both of those passages are directed towards, and both of those passages are primarily concerned with Jewish people. Well, that changes quite abruptly here in chapter 2. Our passage is still directed towards Jewish people. They are the primary target audience here, but the story itself is primarily concerned with two different kinds of covenant outsiders. Read verse 1 with me. We'll try and see if we can spot both of these in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem. These are our two groups of outsiders here. We're introduced to two of them, two kinds of earthly Gentile rulers even. Herod, who was the Roman king who ruled over this region, and then these wise men from the east who appear to be some kind of dignitaries. Uh, they are representatives, presumably, of some other far-off kingdom, maybe multiple kingdoms in the east. And the way Matthew describes them here is really meant to raise questions more so than to give answers. He describes them as wise men, almost like pagan sages from the east, 
Uh, some scholars have speculated maybe Babylon, uh, having adopted a daughter from India, I speculate India. But the point is, it's not clear where these men are from, but they are certainly not from around these parts. These men would have come a long, long way from a strange and far-off land, and the whole point seems to be that this was all very peculiar and unexpected. Somehow, these pagan astrologers have come on behalf of a far-off kingdom to pay homage to the king of the Jews because by observing the stars, they have deduced that he was born. On top of all that, they're not just there to visit, you may notice. They even say, we've come to worship him. And so we're supposed to read this and think, what, what in the world is going on here? Uh, who, who are these men? Why, why do they observe the stars? Why are they even looking at the stars in this way? This is not something that people do really throughout the rest of the Bible. And how did the star guide them here, of all places, for this purpose, in that sense, this shows us not only is this way bigger, this birth of Jesus thing, uh, than it may first appear to a Jew like Joseph, as we saw last week, but more than that, King Jesus' birth is also not, apparently, even just a Jewish thing. It, it is an all-of-creation thing. It is a cosmos sort of thing. But now, try to imagine what this visit would have meant for Herod who was actually in power over the region. He ruled over these Jews who had not had a king now for some centuries, many centuries. And then one day these pagan dignitaries show up looking for the king of these people whom he is supposed to be ruling over. To him and to others we'll see, this would have appeared to be a meeting between allied enemies. Almost as if maybe the Jews were colluding with these eastern nations to plan a revolt against King Caesar, which is something that actually there's historical precedent for. And this contributes really to the mystery of this story, in a sense, because if all that were true, then these wise men probably wouldn't show up to a capital city and start asking people about another king. It's almost as if these wise men were completely oblivious to the political situation in Israel. No one in their right minds would show up to a Roman city and start asking to see the king of the Jews. It would strike fear and even rage in the heart of kings like Herod, and clearly here we see it does. Look with me at verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That's an important detail. All of Jerusalem was troubled. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So this was all very unsettling. And interestingly enough, even to the entire city of Jerusalem, which would have been occupied in large part by very elite Jews. Now, this was troubling news that they heard, these people coming to see their king. This is our first introduction to the last of three groups we're going to encounter throughout the Gospel of Matthew. That is the Jerusalem or the religious elites. Now, much like in our day, most of the affluent, well-to-do people often lived in cities. Jerusalem was kind of like their third ward, okay? But unlike in our day, these very affluent, well-to-do people were 
often the most religiously devout people as well. It's why they lived in Jerusalem, so they could be near the temple. They worshiped God very strictly according to the Old Testament law. So as these wise men show up to Jerusalem, and, and, and the religious elites in the city start to hear them asking for this king of the Jews and where he's born, and if they could worship him, this all starts to cause quite a bit of alarm in the city. And when that alarm spreads all the way up to King Herod, he calls a meeting with the most elite Jews in all of Jerusalem. In particular, he summons the chief priests and the scribes. These would be members of what was called the Sanhedrin Council. And the Sanhedrin Council was, it basically existed to broker and to negotiate the peace between the people of Judea and the Roman Empire. On one hand, these were very, very influential Jewish people. On the other hand, they were also basically politicians. Uh, Some would have seen them also, particularly in the countryside, the Galilean commoners would have seen many of them as sellouts because if they were really for the Jews, then they would never stand by and let the Roman Empire rule over the Jews, much less help them rule over the Jews. And so Herod calls this meeting to ask the Sanhedrin council, listen, when your Messiah comes, where is he supposed to be born? Just tell me, right? And this shows us that Herod was well aware of these prophecies of a coming Jewish king. And again, there were some revolts that were planned in the past, probably that made him aware. And this also shows us that apparently Herod thought there was something to these wise men in this star. At the very least, he was suspicious there was a growing consensus among the Jews that their Messiah figure had been born. And so to answer they basically, the, the member of these, this council, basically they quote a prophecy, this time from the prophet Micah, which foretold that the Jewish Messiah would someday be born in a small and unassuming town called Bethlehem, which is the, ta- the city of King David. It's the city where that king was born. These days it happens to be in the Palestinian-occupied West Bank, which is all over the news. From there, the prophet Micah says, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. As soon as Herod learns this, he calls these wise men to him, and he tries to figure out when that star first appeared, presumably so he can understand when the birth might have taken place, and then he sends them toward Bethlehem, and he tells them, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, On the face of it, even just as the reader, we should be able to see this is disingenuous. Uh, Herod had no intention of of worshiping King Jesus. Matthew just told us he was deeply troubled by the news that he would be born. Next week, we're going to see he wanted to know this information because he was planning to kill Jesus. But then in verses 9 to 11, as these wise men go, we read this glorious meeting between the wise men and an infant King Jesus. As they head towards Bethlehem, that same star starts to guide them again to the place the child was, it says. And verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You can even just sense the worship in that moment. Whoever these men were, they were sincerely drawn to the glory of this newborn king. When they saw him in this house with his mother Mary, it says, they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, notice they didn't come empty-handed, it says they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
The one scholar points out, clearly all these, all three gifts were valuable and together formed a munificent gift suitable for offering to a king. The word munificent just means far more generous than usual. These things were so precious and so rare that a gift like this would have come across as just completely over the top, especially uh, for some young Galilean commoners like Mary and Joseph. Then in verse 12, we're simply told, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. This is yet another example of God's intervention in the Gospel of Matthew, Uh, much like he had last week when he sent an angel to Joseph in a dream. God is intervening here in this story as well to make sure that it unfolds in all the ways he wants it to. And if we want to see that unfold, we just have to look at the idea of sending even in this passage. In the beginning, God sends these wise men to Jerusalem using a star. In the middle, Herod sends these wise men to Bethlehem to do his evil bidding. And in the end, God uses a dream to send them back home safely by another way, keeping King Jesus safe as well. It's an incredibly interesting and beautiful story. But I want you to try and think of it from the perspective of a first century Jew. A first century Jew would likely read this and think, what in the world? (laughs) This is what happened when our king finally came? This is not how the average Jew would have imagined God's redemptive plan getting underway here. They would have assumed, as was the case throughout the Old Testament, that God's plan for his people would have been focused on Israel, the Jews, his people. But in these verses, we are learning something very significant about King Jesus' people. That is, the people God has sent him to forgive and rescue from their sins. And it turns out, God has not just sent this King Jesus to rescue the Jews from their sins. Clearly, the scope of this rescue mission is far, far greater than that. In these verses, Matthew is trying to show us that God wants all people to worship King Jesus. Right? After all these claims that the Old Testament is fulfilled, our king is here, right? The first people to come and worship the king were pagan, star-watching dignitaries from an unknown kingdom far off in the east. And yet Israel's God had guided them there to Bethlehem so that they could worship the sun. So that they could fall down on their faces at the sight of this child. So that they could lavish him with their royal gifts. This could only mean one thing. That God wants all people to worship his son. Not just his Old Testament covenant people. Now with that in mind, now that we know God's plan to make his son the heavenly king of all people, and a little bit of what that means, here are some insights that we can gain from this passage as citizens of Christ's kingdom here on earth today. The first insight I want us to gather here is that God draws those who are far from King Jesus. He draws those who are far. Who in your life seems too far from Christ to ever actually come around and worship him? Who in your life seems so different than you that it would be really hard for them to even imagine that the faith you have may also be for them? 
This story should motivate us to hope and pray at the very least that God would draw these friends to King Jesus because this story, in this story, we see that this is precisely the kind of thing that God delights to do. These wise men would have seemed like oddballs and strangers and misfits in this region, both to the, the religious elites like the citizens of Jerusalem and the irreligious outsiders like King Herod. This is in part why they were so troubled by all of this. They were such outsiders, we didn't even know where they come from. They do weird things like watching stars, which isn't really practiced throughout the rest of the Bible. They would have been the last ones you'd expect to come and look for the Jews' king. And yet God guides them by the stars he created, and he draws them in to worship his son, and he is clearly on their side even, working with them in these cosmic, transcendent ways to make all of this happen, and why is that? It's because he wants all people to worship his son. Even peculiar, odd misfits who really just don't seem to fit into the rest of the story. They're just kind of out of place, right? In other words, clearly not all outsiders are truly irreligious. We see. Some are even destined to worship King Jesus with us. Now, if this is true of these wise men, might it also be true for your wayward son or daughter? Uh, might it also be true uh, for that coworker you have who just seems to make you cringe for any number of reasons every time he, they talk? Uh, might it also be true uh, for your spouse who doesn't follow King Jesus with you, at least not yet. And also from a bit of a different angle, might this also be true for the countless people scattered throughout the world whose lives look radically different than ours? It may help to consider this perspective uh, of, of our worldview in light of this passage. Uh, if God wants all people to worship King Jesus, even those who are far off, what this means is that Jesus is not just, quote, unquote, our king. He, he has not come to be the king of people like us. He, he's not just in charge of, of America, for instance, or even the West. Uh, now, the truth is Christ and his church have had a huge and, and mostly positive impact on the West, which is something we should celebrate. In many ways, we don't even understand the impact of Christianity on the West. But we can see even here from this 2,000-year-old text that he's also been drawing people from the East since like the day he was born. God is all about this kind of thing. It's, it's why he sent his son. He's drawing all kinds of people in to worship him and to be a part of this strange heavenly kingdom. And this is why we need a gospel passion to see people of all nations, including Eastern, even non-democratic nations, respond to this gospel in repentance and faith and to be gathered in together into healthy churches which work together like our church does with other churches in the community, all for the sake of God's glory and the advance of his kingdom in all places of the world. That right there is not just a Western, much less an American idea. That is a kingdom of God idea. I want you to mark your calendar for Sunday, February 25th. We have the director of Good Churches, the ministry we partner with um, internationally that trains native pastors in very hard to reach places of the world. He's gonna come, he's gonna preach, 
And then we're also going to do a meet and greet after the service to talk with him about how this kind of ministry works. It's going to be great. Mark your calendars, February 25th. But this should also shape the way we go about our ministry here in Brookfield, Wisconsin. It really should. For instance, uh, for those of you who might identify yourselves as an irreligious outsider today, uh, those who would say, yes, I'm happily far from Christ, as you've put it, uh, by choice even, I'm just not into this stuff, uh, it may help if I just acknowledge uh, that, that when, when some show up to a church like this one, uh, they may not expect people like us to have a real passion for worshiping with all kinds of people. Uh, uh, to some, a four-year-old suburban church that meets in a cute little white barn doesn't exactly scream welcome, okay? Now, to some, it will. But I have to tell you, it turns out not everyone grew up watching home makeovers on HGTV. I just, I know, I... I know, I know it's hard to imagine, but listen, it's true. And so, if you are inclined at first glance to be suspicious of our church, or even to suspect that this is all just some cultural thing for people like us, or maybe even a front for some other nefarious political agenda, whatever the case may be. I just want to say, as the pastor who's helped to start this church, our message is sincerely not just cultural or political at all. We are not just out to gain power for people like us or to keep other people away from our nice suburban church, not even, not even close. If you actually take the time to meet and get to know any member of this church, I'm confident you'll find they truly believe in this King Jesus. They don't think he's just for them or people like them, and they also long for you to worship this King Jesus with us. Now, there are all kinds of barriers to that kind of ministry especially today, but we do sincerely long to be a diverse congregation in, in as many ways as you can imagine, all united by our faith and our worship of this King Jesus. And, and nothing else, by the way. A, a kind of church that could only exist were it not for faith in this Jesus. And by the way, that is not because this is sort of thing is, is a better church growth or marketing strategy than the others. No, it's because God himself has shown us in passages like this one, he truly does want all people to worship his son, and King Jesus truly does want us to pursue and to move towards others. In fact, by the end of this gospel, he will send us out into all the world to make disciples of all nations, and that will be because he will tell us he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we can be sure here what that means is that his Father in heaven wants all people to worship him. Next, this passage also shows us that God will stop those who oppose King Jesus. God will stop those who oppose him. Notice in this passage, God goes to great lengths to help and to guide those who want to worship King Jesus. He shows the wise men the star, guides them to Israel. Then at the end, he guides them home by a different way to protect both them and King Jesus, right? But in Herod's case, God actually uses this dream to thwart and to prevent his evil plot against Jesus. In other words, God helps the wise men who worship King Jesus, and he stops the wicked ruler who is intent to kill King Jesus. And this should do at least two things in our hearts. Uh, first, I think it should put us at ease a little bit. 
Because we don't have to be the ones to always sort of charge in like Peter will do later in this gospel with a sword ready to fight all of King Jesus' enemies. As if this whole plan to establish God's heavenly kingdom ultimately depends on us and not so much on King Jesus and his heavenly father. This should also give us great confidence that no matter what we do, God will see to it that this heavenly kingdom is established. Someday his son will be worshipped by all. As Paul says, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father who wants all of us to worship him, right? We can live as if we're absolutely certain of these things, as if there is no question in our minds that this kingdom will be established. Now, in our day, for many reasons, it's very tempting to give in to one of two unhealthy instincts in opposite directions here. The first instinct might say something like this, that Jesus doesn't really have any enemies in this world. And that's just such an extreme idea, right? Well, a reader with that instinct only has to read this and see King Herod to realize he must be mistaken because he wanted to kill Jesus the very moment he was born. Jesus absolutely has enemies in this world. Uh, Those who oppose this idea that he's the king of all creation and even resist and rebel against this message of his grace and his mercy, they hate that message. This is a very real thing in our world even today, and it is increasingly difficult to miss. But the second also troubling instinct says that this entire world is filled with nothing but enemies of Jesus, except for us, of course. Everyone else is hopelessly wicked and vehemently against us. They all know we worship Jesus and they hate us for it and they're coming for us, right? Again, in certain cases, that may be true. Uh, Jesus does have real enemies and he reminds us that so will we if we worship him. But a reader with this instinct has only to read this story and see the wise men to realize that he may be mistaken. There may be some truth to Jesus having enemies, but maybe it's a little more complicated than all that, right? Maybe not every outsider is just an enemy of King Jesus. In fact, maybe God wants all people, including them, to come and worship Jesus with us. Now, these extremes, they're important to talk about, especially these days, because in many ways and for many reasons, many people tend to focus almost exclusively on these extremes uh, to the extent that it almost starts to seem like our only option is just to choose the one that seems least problematic. Uh, As if King Jesus has no enemies and the people who think he does are just lunatics. Or as if King Jesus has only enemies and anyone who's not on our team must be one of them. This passage has a beautiful way of threading the needle right through both of these untruths. Church, we don't have to fear. Nothing will prevent this divine rescue plan. Nothing can stop King Jesus' rule and reign because this God is sovereign even over the stars above and will use them if need be to thwart the plans of those who oppose his son. Which really leads to our final point of application Namely, that God is with King Jesus and all who worship him. He's with us. Sometimes we tend to view Jesus as this soft-spoken, always gentle, shepherd kind of guy. You know, the kind of guy who only ever suggests things that are very pleasant for everyone and 
would never dream of infringing on another person's right to, you know, live their best life. You know, listen, listen, I'm here if you find me helpful, but you know, if not, that's okay, I understand, right? Look, certainly Jesus is a gentle shepherd who is filled with compassion and mercy without question, but that doesn't mean he has come into this world to be just another option for those who, you know, maybe feel his vibe or whatever. We're going to see with each chapter of Matthew that Jesus has come. He is here to lay claim on every square inch of creation. And his father is not laissez-faire about his rule and his reign or by, that, by, the, uh, or by extension our response to his rule and his reign. We can see it right here. The God of heaven is zealous for the royal life of his son. He is with Jesus, sovereignly orchestrating the details of these events toward his dominion over all of heaven and earth. And he is also with those who worship King Jesus, sovereignly guiding us into his, king, into his kingdom. So listen, Jesus is kind and gentle. Absolutely and amen. Praise God for both. But again, in the end, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Our knees will bow, either in awe like these wise men, or someday by force, like Herod. So to our unbelieving friends who think you are fine with or without worshiping this Jesus, I have to tell you from a place of love and genuine care for your soul, you are not fine unless you worship this King Jesus. If you do not worship this now resurrected God, man, and king, then you are not okay with God, your maker. He truly has sent his son to be king of all. He truly has rule and reign over all. It is real, but you, listen, you will never be a citizen of his kingdom unless you bow the knee to King Jesus as these wise men do. You will have to decide, like these wise men and King Herod, if you will respond to Jesus in worry or in wonder. You will have to decide if he is a threat to you or a thrill to you. You will have to decide if you will fall on your face before him in worship or if you will nail him to a cross. But God will not be with you in the same way regardless of your choice. He is with his son and all those who worship him, period. As the apostle John writes in his epistle, he says very clearly, no one who denies the son has the father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Amen. Praise God for that. Now, at the same time, when we talk about Christ's rule and reign and kingdom these days, we do also have to qualify. Remember, his kingdom is not of this world. Uh, and he has come to rescue his people from their sins more than anything else. So now, I'm going to gently caution us against the kind of teaching that, in my view, gets these things wrong. Now, anytime I do this, I need you to know uh, this is not just an attempt to put other people down or to hoist up me or our church up. Uh, in Titus, actually, I'm told this is, this is part of my job. 
Paul says an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So, so I'm going to do that, um, but I want to do it with wisdom, and I want to do it in truth. I'm happy to be accountable to anyone for that. All that to say, there's a set of views on the end times in particular, which in my view is susceptible to really confusing these ideas of God's kingdom in the world today. And seeing it uh, in a far too earthly kind of way. Uh, the, the view I'm referring to is actually called post-millennialism. Uh, and it's this idea that Christians are supposed to work together to make the world more Christian until eventually it sort of becomes the new heavens and the new earth, and then Jesus will return. And the thought is that God is with us in doing that and will ultimately make it work. Every other common view of eschatology um, imagines things getting much worse, for example, uh, before Jesus would return. And at first, postmillennialism seems like a very appealing and even optimistic view, but there's a bit of a catch because this idea of making the world more Christian often includes the government which is where, in my view, this position veers off the rails because it gets dangerously close to ushering in God's kingdom or at least trying to see that happen, his rule and reign through political means, which history has shown us is a very bad idea. And more importantly, the scriptures show us is not the way that God means to establish his kingdom. In particular these days, some who espouse these views are often marked by a sort of smug and dismissive posture toward the world and anyone who raises any concerns about that posture, uh, as if anyone who rejects this framework is just a big wuss who lacks the courage to actually confront and stand up to evil in the world. And I just want to say, this, this is a real thing. These men have real YouTube channels that are kind of popular, but at least popular enough to be a bit concerning, especially in volatile times like this. Now, in general, postmillennialism it's a credible position that many Christians have held to, and not all who hold to it fall prey to these political temptations that I'm referring to, uh, but some do, and, and I fear that many will be drawn to this smug, confrontational posture with the world, which is becoming very popular, without ever considering even the theological ideas that motivate it. We'll talk more about God's kingdom and our earthly kingdoms and the relationship between the two throughout our series. It's an important topic in the book about a king who's come to rule over all nations. But suffice to say, to say that the Father is with Jesus and those who worship him does not necessarily mean you just watch and he's going to make sure that we win and everybody else loses. It's, it's, not, that kind of, it's not that simple. Uh, we will soon find, in fact, that this God is sovereignly protecting his royal son from King Herod so that someday another Roman ruler can nail his 33-year-old body to a cross. And even that will be part of his age-old plan to establish his heavenly kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. By redeeming sinners like us through our worship of his brutally murdered son. This is a strange kingdom, you guys. This is a strange king. And worshiping him may lead our lives in all kinds of strange directions. It doesn't always translate to things like earthly prosperity and cultural power. Uh, God may lead us to cities, entire cities, where people who should be happy about this are deeply troubled by the good news of King Jesus. 
Someday we may find ourselves face down on a dirt floor in a small country town, all because it seemed like a star was leading us there, okay? God's kingdom is very peculiar and unpredictable. But the point is this, wherever our worship of King Jesus leads us, we can be sure that God will be with us there. He will be with us. He will get us where we need to go safely. And if there is some existential threat to his son or to us along the way, he will guide us home safely by another way. Because clearly this God wants all people to worship his son. And if we are not, and if we are rather one of those who do, then church, this God will be with us even to the end of the age.